Hey guys, welcome to the Miles Fit Transformation Show, an experience dedicated to your transformation on all levels, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and energetically. I'm Miles Kroll, your host, as well as the owner and founder of the Miles Fit Montreal Private Personal Training Studio. Tune in and listen up for this week's episode. Hey guys, it's Miles from Miles Fit. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Paul Gagné, one of the top strength coaches out there, who's also one of the top posturologists and performance specialists. We're going to be going into a variety of different topics, talking about posture, posturology, performance, and a variety of different things. But we're going to start off by Paul just giving an introduction of himself and breaking that down for you guys. Paul Gagné, been doing it for my 36 years. I'm like, I'm the old guy into was fortunate enough by the age of 22 to start to work with very high level athletes and since then it never stopped and I mean we're, we always talk about ourselves as architect and my athletes are all doing the work they're, they're the real workforce behind it and that's basically we're all there to our we have a big group around us and we're, we're very fortunate to be able to work with these level high level athletes like that and when it comes to your philosophy on training, if you were to kind of summarize what that really represents, how would you kind of put that? I mean, I mean, the body is, it's not separate. It's always, there's a lot of, there's no compartment. It's one unit. It's a, it's, and then you have to understand the neural part, the postural part, the neuromuscular part, the fascial part, but it's all one unit. If you move one thing, everything goes with it. And that's been the problem when I started 36 years ago, that origin, insertion, and everything, and segmental, it's great, but you need to understand the links. And when you understand the links of, with the feet, the eyes, the brain, the fascia, then you understand more, it's a lot easier to, to work with your athletes, or even in rehab, a lot of, you, you have a lot more freedom in movement than just having to be segmental. And would you say in your experience, having been around a lot of strength coaches, working with athletes, that one of the problems has really been that people have kind of compartmentalized training and not seen it as a whole in an interconnected system of systems? Same thing, thing, same thing as our medical system. You got a specialist now almost with your left eye and your right finger. It doesn't work like this. In the old days, and I'm very fortunate because I work a lot in Europe, it's not like that. Still in Europe, you have like... That we have still generalists, and they're, they're going to look at you, they're going to check your eyes, they're going to check your jaw, and usually they have a posturologist even next, in the, the next door, and they want to make sure that the structures that will dictate the function is okay, not because you have pain here that it's a problem at the long head of the bicep. It's usually something else, and, but if you go and see a regular doctor, he's going to give you shots there or whatever, he's going to poke at it. You're going to concentrate there, but it doesn't look at your feet, doesn't look at your posture, doesn't look at the alignment. When you go to the garage to fix your car, what they do already, they check the alignment of your wheels. In Formula One, they spend way more time on the suspension and on, on the tires than anything else. Most Formula One team, they have pretty much the same engine, and the drivers are pretty equal. What, what's the difference? A lot of time goes down to the adherence, the tires, and all balance is, is the car. Same thing as human body. 
And did you always have a holistic view on training or was there really a shift point for you in your career where you connected the dots and really kind of internalized and realized that the body was a system of systems? Well, Charles Poliquin was kind of my first mentor. We're the same age. Sadly, we lost him a couple of months ago and he was one of the first ones to really emphasize on gaining a bit more muscle but in an intelligent way, not always in a bodybuilding way. Then I met Paul Cech. Again, we're the same age. Him too, he had a little more physio type of approach back then, but very holistic. And then later on, Dr. Bernard Bricot was uh, our mentor in posturology from France. Then we understood the role of the receptors. And then Guy Voyer was the biggest influence on, on my biggest mentor that I met in the mid-90s that was very putting everything together because he was actually, he was a kiné before in France. He was a good strength coach, medical doctor, osteopath. He had a full package and he made us understand that until you really understand the functional anatomy, not origin and insertion, that it's going to be very hard for you to have very high success for long duration with your athletes. And I've been very, very lucky and fortunate for to have athletes for the last 20, 25 years now. And, but again, it's a team. They see Dr. Voyer, they see our team, and they, it's not only me, it's, a, it's like a Formula One team. And when you started implementing a lot of concepts having to do with posture and seeing the body as a system of systems, did you see that immediate improvement in performance in your athletes? Well, you saw an immediate improvement in their posture, and we understand that you're always as good as what you're doing against gravity. We're creatures, we're affected by gravity, and the more you're deviated, under gravity, the more problems you will have in movement. Also, we call it abnormal solicitation. I got pretty good arms. One is a little beat up now, but if I hold a small dumbbell for two pounds for more than half an hour, that arm will be very fatigued. But if I keep it to my side, I could spend the whole day. It's the same weight. It's just gravity will not affect me as much. If you're well aligned, your center of mass or your gravity line is aligned with the, the gravity line, and then, then it's a unison, and you're, you're, you're not, as you're walking, as you're moving outside of your training, you're not using excess energy. Most people are too much forward and on one side. Imagine when they go back to the gym. Already, if that put them in a scanner, they're already all excited. Their body is all, all like on fight or flight. They're in sympathetic already, and there's a lot. Their, their tone of the muscle is way too high already. They don't relax. Look at the best athletes. Look at a guy like Usain Bolt when he runs. The, the face the moves, everything is, has a smile, and everything is fluid. Other guys, like they're not, they're good athletes, but they're stiffer. They don't get, they're not as effective. And that's where the, the understanding of, of body mechanics and the link about everything of the fascia, especially even facial expression, the receptors, plays a big role, not only in sports performance, also in health in general. Many studies have shown if your posture is there's deregulated and deprogrammed, you will have problem also feeling good because when you win the lottery, where do you how do you look? You look very happy. You look up, and then your posture who goes your postural system sends a message to the brain that the brain says, "Hey, you must be feeling really good." But if you you feel always depressed or you did something bad on, on the ice. I've seen hockey players that they ruminate like cows. They do something wrong and I see them on the bench. They're like a two-year-old. They're having a small tantrum. They will repeat the same error because the brain perceives that and say, hey, that's what he wants. That's what, let's go. You're on a good path now. 
And this is where a good coach will come. Hey, Miles, come on, it's okay. Forget about it. We, we have a big game to play. And then, whoop, he was going to cheer you up. This is the role of, of coaching. But also, we teach that to our, our athletes how to control the breathing, to modify their posture, their, their facial expression, where they look, how balanced their eyes and their feet. And that will have an influence over performance a lot more than anything else. Anything, there's no correlation in between how much you bench, how much you squat, and how much you make money in the NHL. There's zero. And someone, they, they, sometimes they, they, they ask us, so I, can't, I can't say, yes, you have to have certain denominators, you have, but I could name guys that they have like 18-inch vertical jump making uh, five, six, seven million a year. And I know people, 36 vertical jump, they never played one game in the NHL. It's like that. Yes, you need a balance, but it's not always a, a, an output of power or, or, or strength in the gym. It's how efficient you are, and efficiency starts with a good posture. All your receptors are well calibrated, and now you're not using too much energy the rest of your day. The rest of the day usually is my worst enemy. Athletes that are married, athletes that have a very steady life, usually will last way longer than the very rich young athlete that makes million, but is single. That's the nature of, of the beast. I've seen that. Right. So you mentioned receptors, and I think that's really an important word. For your average person, when it comes to posture and understanding what that means and what the definition is and what are these receptors and how that works, could you talk a little bit about the postural system and these receptors? The main two, there's so many, but the main two are your eyes and your feet. Basically, how do you stand up? It's basically how your brain, through your receptors, perceives you in space. How many times you've seen, you've been doing it for many years, that you have good athletes who are coming in, they're like this, they have no clue they're like that because the message they get from their receptors are wrong. I mean, they have a valgus foot, they have a flat feet, they have flat feet, they have incoherence and also lack of convergence in one eye. There's many things that could happen to the eyes and the muscle, but if you have one eyebrow higher than the other one, one eye, when I bring it shooting out, you will have consequences in your posture, but it, you, don't, you don't have control over it. That's why a lot of these gizmo was vibrating. It doesn't work because it's kind of unconscious. It is conscious when you reprogram it, but when you do it, your perception is biased. It's almost having Vaseline on your glasses. This is you think you're seeing right, but when you remove the Vaseline, oh, wow, this is, this is how I should look. This is where I, the receptors are directly linked with all your standing, all your perception against gravity. So I think for a lot of people, when they think of posture, they think of it as something being permanent or they were born that way, and they don't really have an understanding of the implication of these receptors with the feet and the eyes. I think for a lot of people hearing this information for the first time, thinking, okay, how do my feet work? How do my eyes work? They're probably also wondering, how do these things get off in the first place? They're getting off more now because we're less active. People that they're very, I worked for 16 years in Jamaica, I was traveling back and forth, and the same Jamaicans from Montego Bay or Kingston had similar postural problem that we see in Montreal or New York. But the, my Jamaican athletes from the countryside where they didn't wear shoes, that they were constantly outside, their muscular, the muscle of their eyes were way more in tune. They had a lot of very good ocular movement. And also the skin of their feet was more sensitive. They had a very, very good sensor development, the, that re, the portal receptor or sensor was highly uh, adjusted to their environment and very highly active. This is why these runners, you didn't hear them when they were running. 
they were very light on their feet. Their movement was like a big cat. But a lot of people, like in Montreal, you put them on a wood floor, you'll hear them move. Same thing on the ice. My best skaters, you don't hear them. They, they glide. They have, the one that they have a very good postural control or very good reprogrammation of the postural system, they glide on the ice. It's so effortless. That's why a game should stay a game, not an Olympic event. Right, so for most people, I mean, we're walking around wearing shoes. We haven't from birth been walking around yeah. barefoot. So pretty much from the moment you start putting shoes on, you start destabilizing your postural system. If you wear them too young. I always tell people why I've seen baby in a crib, babies in a crib and they have shoes. That's why. <laughs> That's why we always gave like this, that, like on babies that, that the little brush you use for the head, you use it under the sole of the foot to activate it because naturally we live in Canada and we have like eight, nine months that we can't really walk bare feet outside. Even in the summer, it's kind of, it's kind of dangerous. But in the house, we should be able to move our feet like our hands. We need to introduce that to the kids, make them crawl as long as we can for the development of the brain. Now, like I was walking very early because in my age group, everybody had a jolly jumper but it built artificial legs, but it was really bad. I'm very fortunate that I don't, I don't have hip problem, but a lot of people in my age group, they have a lot of hip problem because the coverage of the femur into the acetabulum happens a lot when you crawl. And if you walk at eight months, that's not normal. Normal walking is about 12, 13, 14 months. Now later on, and then you have a better gait. It's the same thing with the skin of the feet. If you're always protecting your feet against the environment, they're gonna be shut down. In French, the French, they call it la cystite du capteur podal. It's almost like the blindness. Their foot becomes blind. And already, we're one of the only species on Earth that were five times longer than our base of support. It's amazing. Anything in the gym here that you put up, it will fall down. We don't. Then basically, how do we stand up? It's, it's basically the skin of the feet that detects. It's connected with the cerebellum. and many, it's more complex than that. But to make a short very long story short, the receptors, they, they dictate pretty much how you're going to apply pressure on the floor and how you're going to be in balance with the connection with the brain all the time. But if you're always covering these feet, you have no connection. It's like your, your Wi-Fi is turned off. But to activate it, you could use these little cobblestone mats. They have special postural insoles also that we use a lot. I've used, you've used to reprogram. But outside of that, walking on, on grass, walking on, on, in sand, gravel at a very young age, using these little brushes will allow the, the kid to delay or avoid postural imbalances later on. And you know, for someone who's maybe not a kid, someone who's 40 years old, 50 years old, who've kind of ingrained this kind of pattern in the fascia, their feet are kind of numbed out a little bit, they've been wearing shoes, you know, that person, should they start uh, stop wearing shoes? Should they, you know, what should they start doing to but be able to start addressing start, that? Yes, and in the house, but they have to repro. They have first of all to see a good posturologist to get reprogrammed. And it's I have people in their 80s, and if if they were a bit active when they were younger, the change are way quicker because it's almost like not riding your bike for 40 years. If you if you rode your bike before, it won't take you that much time. Luckily, when we meet elderly people, most of them were very active when they were younger. It's just recently, like now you go in, in schools. When I was younger, we played hockey in the morning, 
at the uh, recreation. We, girls were skipping role-playing the elastic. They were doing plyometrics like four hours a day. Also, level of obesity was a lot lower, but they were playing all the time. And after school, our parents used to scream at us, come in. Now my son is 20. If I want to, to punish him when he was younger, go out. <laughs> See, that's the problem. That's why there is a, a big problem in postural. The more we sit down, the more we use screens, the more we shut it down. Go, to go back to your question for elderly people, I've seen, I, I've never seen someone not having an effect when you know what to do with your posture. I've never seen one. Some, if they're very active, it's spectacular. It's like, wow, you've, what have you done? Oh, I was a dancer, I did ballet when I was younger, I played high level hockey or anything like gymnastic, hockey, martial art, skiing, all these, I call them cerebellum workouts because you need your GPS to work and your, the brain more than muscle type of sports will stay with you the rest of your life. Like, that's the thing. Now kids, they don't have a background in anything outside a computer. It's a bit of a problem. My son, he's 20, sometimes he has to write an essay, he's in massage therapy school, and he has pain in his fingers. We used to have calluses on the, the major because we wrote so much. Even myself, sometimes I write, my signature changed because I don't write anymore. My wife like, it's like you're writing like a five-year-old because we don't write. We, the last 20 years, we just use our fingers. So I guess a lot of this comes down to if you don't use it, you, you lose, lose it. it. Exactly. Yeah. Posture is made to move. Even at the mitochondria, the, the level of where we, we create energy, it, it's been proven and researched. If you don't move, you die. It's not even if. You will die. There's no movement. When you don't move, life goes away. So we talked a lot about the feet. You mentioned the screen, which was alluding to the eyes. So why don't you talk a little bit now about the eyes and their implication in posture and how that kind of regulates a little bit. I mean, they're directly connected to your brain. And I'm not talking about eyesight. I'm talking about the muscle uh, the, uh, around the eye. And a lot of time, if you had a concussion or certain type, or even at birth, what they prove if the delivery was really hard, some kids, they have almost, almost like a concussion because inside the wound. And it, it creates an imbalance in the muscle of the eyes. And what happened is that if I bring one finger, I will see one eye shoots out, then the other one. It's called lack of convergence, or there's many other tests. You could use a Maddox test, you could use many, but a simple one, you bring your finger, and if it shoots out, there is a problem. It will create an imbalance, and you will see. People, just watch people, one eyebrow is higher than the other one. It's called cranium dysmorphism. You'll see even the, the, the mouth. But as soon as you reprogram the muscle of the eyes, suddenly, instantly, the face change. It's very interesting. Will it last? No. That's why I always recommend that you see a posturologist, or we're lucky in Montreal, my colleague David Tangerus is the best orthoptist there is. We're very, we have, the, have him in Montreal. Sorry, David, you'll have a lot of phone calls, but that's, you're the best. And he works with all my athletes. I mean, he's a specialist of the movement of the eyes. And that's what we do. We do a bit in posturology, but these guys are like, that's why we have Michel Joubert, Dr. Michel Joubert, famous podiatrist. I mean, we know feet with posture, but he's a podiatrist, he's the king. Whenever all my athletes went through Mike, because don't get me wrong, sometimes orthotics are very useful, especially if you have any ailments, like a Morton's neuroma, as an example, or in skates or ski boots, that when there's an abnormal force displacement, you will need abnormal support to create, because if you have a flat foot, not you will help with posture, but 
in the ski boot or in the, the shoe or the skate, you will need special, and, and Michel Joubert is the top guy to really calibrate, not too much, and uh, he's a master on that, especially with our, that's why then the eyes, the feet, they work well. Suddenly the athlete's like, wow, I feel so good. Did he gain strength? No. Did he gain power? Over time, yes, because he will have less aches and pain, but immediately, sometimes, but usually efficiency is more prominent than, than power output than we see. So pretty much at the end of the day, I mean, it's fair to say that most people are walking around, if not all, with postural dysfunction. Up to 95. I would say before our numbers were about 95%. Now I would say, just do a little test. You make someone stand up, take a stick, and usually the stick should be touching the glutes and touching the spine, right in the middle and very close to the head. Most people are like this. And I tell people at home, just stand up, close your eyes, see where you're going. Most of them, if you watch their running shoes, their toes will grip the sole. Then if you wear, I don't know, 11, you're not wearing 11, you're wearing uh, maybe eight. Because your feet are like this, imagine the aponeurosis, all the receptors are crunched up. It will lead to a lot of Achilles problem, the plantar fascia with the soleus and the gastroc, and the, 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 what makes the Achilles tendon will be very tight. You won't have any, you won't have any dorsiflexion. When you squat, your hips will go backward because your knee can't travel over the subtalar joint. It's all a cascade of, of catastrophe. And uh, in hockey, number one correlation of bad skating is not lack of movement in between the subtalar joint and the knee. And the Achilles tendon, you have skates that blocks you, but you need to be able to do that. All the best skaters are in that position. People that they have a harder time to skate, like that. Imagine the consequences of playing hockey with your head between your legs. And I see that constantly, even with pro guys. Higher level of concussion, last lack of efficiency. You have five, you're, you're five guys on the ice with a small puck with another five opponent, plus four refs, plus small place, and it's slippery, and one little puck for the whole gang, one only. Then you need to make decision and movement. If your posture is not good and you're high and your feet and your hips are not well aligned to accelerate, decelerate, and also make a snapshot, okay, you're going to be there in about half a second. I have to shoot the putt there. Nothing's going to happen because you need to lift your head. The time you just moved, someone came in. And it's very interesting when I analyze some of the best young players, most of them, they have a very good posture. They're in that 5%. Now, when it comes to people with chronic pain, because a lot of people are suffering with lower back pain, knee pain, shoulder pain, a lot of people are going for the traditional routes of physiotherapy, athletic therapy, these types of things, and they're getting temporary results, but these things seem to keep coming back. What I've seen in my experience working with people is that posture plays a big role in that, but it's one of those things, if it's not addressed as the underlying component, you never really can correct the body. Is that right? Structures dictates function. I mean, it's, it's if you're, you're struck, if the house is crooked, you could have the best builder to build a second floor, but it will be crooked. When you buy a place, you need that, where you go? Right down to the basement, the foundation, make sure there's no crack, and the, the ground, the soil where it was built was really solid. Then we could build. That's why. Chiropractic is great, osteo is great, uh, athletic therapy, everything is good when you have a good specialist, but has to be in tandem of understanding the brain function with the posture through the receptors. If you do that, then you're in business. You will have, we use many techniques like LDOA, they're tremendous to modify posture. Uh, Guy Voyer that I met 25 years ago, 
did his, uh, his thesis was validated at the CES in Marseille, where Posturology is uh, this Collège International des Études de la Statique. This is where, and this is where Yvoye did amazing to change posture in combination with certain eye movement or feet, it's and proprioception that we teach in soma training, amazing results and very quick to and long lasting. So I actually learned first about the Eldoas and myofascial stretching through you, yeah. and it's something that's becoming more and more popular. Yeah. Uh, there's little clinics and classes popping up all over the place. And this is what place. about 15 years ago when we, when we met. That's the thing. See, it takes time. Yeah. Now it's getting, but we're talking about. And I think you did your posturology course with us about maybe 12, 15 years. But again, now, because Annette, Annette Verpio, thank you. You're promoting it. So you, she does so good to the posturology. She made it so, and Matt Boulay too, but Annette is the big, like, the, the, the big brain behind it. I'm very fortunate. I'm presenting this weekend in French with her for two days. Very exciting. And it's going to be a, like a hell of a show. It's going to be fun. But she made it so much in a good package and an understanding. When we took the courses many years ago with Brico, it was great, but it was more addressed to doctors, it was more into a, a clinical approach. She made it amazingly use, useful for trainers to really see before and after, and also in, in a quick reset or certain thing, very practical. And this, I thank her for that, because I mean, I wish we had that kind of understanding when I met uh, Brico 25 years ago would have been way easier for us. Because over time, sadly, in our group, only a handful practice because they didn't understand really the application. They knew the theory, but Annette with her team, she did so good to, to make it more like understanding. No, absolutely. I mean, posturology and the science of posture has come a long way. Uh, for me, it's what changed my life because I had a major uh, lower back injury deadlifting. And uh, it wasn't until I became aware that my posture was off that that was the root cause. Yeah. And as soon as that was addressed, my pain went away, my performance came back. And your body changed like this. 100%. I mean, that was, that was a major thing in your case. I was shocked, like, how quick. And then that's why you're a good trainer, because when you go through these things, sadly, my best, like now I had a bicep tear, they repaired it, but now I'll be a master in repairing bicep. I only had maybe 10 cases when I was, it's not something in hockey that happens a lot, in, even in skiing, and it's more in combat sport, but it's not, and also it's not an injury you see every day, but now I'm becoming to understand a lot more because I went through the pain. That's one of the things I've learned in my life. You know, you, you only get real wisdom when you go through an experience. Exactly. Everything at the end of the day is just a theory or you're reading headlines, and I feel especially now with the age of information, with social media and blogs and all this stuff. There's a lot of people talking about ideas, but not as many people being practitioners, applying it, doing it with themselves, especially in really learning what works and what doesn't work, or using it with the right kind of athletes and tracking their data and analytics and seeing what's going on. What I, when I tell the trainers and also the athlete, try to focus on one thing at a time, and that's the key. It's good to take a lot of courses. It's good to do a lot of stuff, reading, but like the slogan of Nike, just do it. I would add, just do it right. Because <laughs> if you don't do it, you can't apply it. And you can't, it, it doesn't become knowledge. It doesn't mean that you read 20 books a day that you have knowledge. You're just regurgitating what someone read, someone wrote, and you're reading. But it's not your experience. You could take that, use it, apply it. But I may give you the same recipe of my pie. It may not taste the same. I mean, 
my buddies, they own Joe Beef. I got the recipe book. I still go there. Doesn't taste the same because they're masters of what they do. And that, that's the thing. That's why how many people that you train, they could train on their own. They prefer to train with you. Yeah, well, there's no question that having, you know, a set of eyes there that's seen it before that can guide and coach them makes a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, essentially, that's what the service is. Yeah. Because movement is movement, and in theory, every anybody could move, but to understand that fine movement and know what to do and when to do it and how to do it, I mean, that's, that's where a coach comes into the yeah. equation. Yeah. yeah, no, it's I've seen with especially a lot of up-and-coming um, therapists and trainers, they're looking at a lot of information because there's a lot of information out there, but they're almost overwhelmed. And because exactly. they're overwhelmed, they're not actually applying anything. So you mentioned before that you know, if you're doing too much, you don't end up really doing anything at exactly. all. So for people you know, who are in the industry, who want to get better, who want to deliver to their clients better results, you know, what do you think that they really need to focus on when it comes down to narrowing in on what's important? First of all, it's always referral. Check with other colleagues to see what, what kind of results they had. And then after that, focus on one thing at a time. Because if you're, again, if you jack of all trade, master of none is not good. To become a master, you need to focus in one, one little thing, one little thing. And then when you become better, okay, now you could add. It's a big toolbox. But if you have too many tools, you won't really know which one works because you didn't use it yet. You need to use the tool. You'll make mistakes. But the only thing that's going to happen is that that doesn't work. And then you'll take another tool, and then you—that's how you apply, and that's its trials and error all the time. And have you seen going to you know all these conferences and connecting with different people that the industry itself is is generally moving in the right direction? I could, I would say so. I think people are getting more, like I don't want to say intelligent, but they're they're, they're starting to to. There is a movement. I saw it this year at Swiss, where I've been presenting for years. Uh, I saw a moralistic vibe even there. I, I liked it. Like he, there was not a, the, the clan of the power lifters it used to be. Now pretty much everybody was blending in with everybody and I saw the level, although it was the same people, the level of intercommunication was more in a unity. And I, I like that because again, human body or human body, we won't it's not because I'm a soma trainer or posturologist that you have, have a different body than you have, or I may perceive things that you don't know, but it doesn't mean that what you do doesn't work. And I've seen that positive shift as well in the industry. You know, guys like yourself, Paul Check, Charles Poliquin, were talking about the body being an interconnected yeah. system of systems way long time ago. I even remember these DVDs that I had from Paul Check yeah. from the 80s yeah. where he was talking about functional movement and how the body moves yeah. as a unit. Yeah. And now I see people applying those principles. You know, we're the year 2019 now, yeah. and these DVDs were from, from the 80s, early 80s. Mid well, we're just starting to discover all the value of, of yoga. A lot of people, they thought, okay, they don't shave, they don't... No, no, <laughs> actually, there's actually science, uh, scientific research showing how many type of yoga really helps uh, at the fascial system at the brain. And, and they, to the point like some university, they don't even know how they got that knowledge six, seven, eight thousand years ago. They say they didn't have the apparatus, they didn't have, but what they did was outstanding. So and you, it's, 
So you brought up yoga, and uh, which makes me instantaneously think of meditation yeah. and mindfulness. Uh, is that something that you feel is becoming more and more prevalent with people in the world of performance, understanding the importance of activating the parasympathetic nervous system, rest, regeneration, repair? But that was the main difference in between the East and the West. Although the, the, all the Eastern Bloc athletes used to take a lot of vitamins to enhance. <laughs> they had, because of their upbringing, they had more a kind of a Buddhist or Zen uh, meditation kind of approach. I remember I was a wrestler and our coach were Russians and we used to be doing art coherence when I was like 10 years old, breathing techniques and stuff. And this is like what, 45 years ago, more than that. And then, but all, all my athletes, the athletes that do it, I see the difference when you do hard coherence technique. You don't need to meditate. If you do, just do breathe in four seconds by the nose, exhale by the mouth six seconds, do that 10 minutes, two, three times a day, you will see how good you are. You will, you're, you're, you will not a attach any anchor to the mind. People, they saw my thoughts. Let them go, it's like a cloud. If every, imagine if every cloud that you would see, you would follow, you would go nuts. That's why people, they have a hard time just concentrate on the breathing. And that, that's enough. You could do music, you could do, we work on four, 432 hertz, 458 hertz. I mean, they're all technology very high. But it's like, it's like, uh, like that music that we have on, sorry, it's on my, my phone, little ACDC. But it's, it's, all, it's all like that. It's all how, how you move through breathing and also being good in your environment. And that's the secret. Yeah, I've seen for myself working with people, people today more than ever are tremendously stressed. I mean, you have everything going on with career, finances, relationships, and for a lot of people, they're going to the gym, they're making it there, for those people who are making it there, they're training hard, but they're kind of, in my opinion, adding fuel to the fire, that they're exactly. more yang than yin. So, I mean, two of the biggest things I see kind of emerging now are, number one, the importance of posture in terms of aligning your body and performance, but equally this importance to kind of unwind and calm your mind down. But we've done that when you were a baby, you had dinner, then you had your bath, and then you had your story, and then you fell asleep. You, why is that? S school wired you up, then you had to do your, your, your homework then you're still a bit wired. I mean, it's an activity, you're in sympathetic. Then dinner, that's why at the table, I was a big family, my parents didn't, didn't allow us to talk too much, like to argue, because they, they knew that digestion was related to emotion too. And if you eat in a calm environment, you'll absorb more nutrients. And then it's also a winding down, not watching TV or your iPad until 10 and thinking you're gonna fall asleep at 10, 15. You will, because you're exhausted. And the blue light will still, you're not secreting any melatonin, your pineal gland is all wired up, and then you, you fall asleep by exhaustion by 2 to 15, you're waking up, okay, what do I do now? Then you're restless, because if you meditate, you do mindfulness, you do breathing techniques, you actually don't need that much sleep. I met some yogis, they sleep like two, three hours a day. A guy like Guy Boye, sleep like, I don't know, four or five hours a day. I, I know him for years, and he, I mean, he's always under control. That guy works like, I've never seen work, someone work like this. When, on days that he does seminar, he treats like eight, nine people. It's, it's in, insane. And he's not a young boy anymore, but amazing energy, but he has that calmness all the time. He's, 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 he has like that kind of 
alpha brain wave. I would put a scanner, I'm pretty sure he's always around 12 to 13 hertz. He's, on the zone, he's in the zone, that's why he's so efficient. But he was a judo, was world champion judo. He had a lot of martial art background, probably that's his, and being from Marseille, they have a little, they're more cool than us. Uh, and then probably, I, I don't know, because I've never seen him out of, out of his mind. It's very interesting, and he should be, because he's so busy, and it's very hectic. But th these was, him and uh, some, my best athletes, they have that, that demeanor, like they have that kind of coolness. They're not lethargic, but they're very cool, under any circumstance. Yeah, yeah, they have that calmness within the storm. Exactly. They're just like totally That's why they're so strong and efficient. Right, right. You brought up before, uh, you mentioned energy, you mentioned digestion, you mentioned the dinner table. One thing I wanted to ask you about shifting gears from posture, from performance, strength training, is a little bit about nutrition, you know, and what some of your perspectives and ideas are about nutrition. I mean, we, we're, we're, we need to feed the energy, the mitochondria. We know there's a lot of theory back there that we need a lot of veggies. But there's other studies that show, like with lectin, that I don't always agree with because when you cook, when you mix, but basically we eat too much. For thousands of years, we only had maybe one or two meals a day. That's the thing. That's why a lot of people doing intermittent fasting, they have a good result. Some people on keto diet, they have, but bottom line, they're, when you're on keto diet, you're reducing a lot of your calories. Many years ago, they had uh, many different types, the South Beach diet, a Montsignac diet, they were reducing significantly the number of calories. And that's the key. People, they don't fast anymore. We need, for thousands of years, we, that's why they had these religious, uh, for the Christian, there was Lent, then you got Ramadan, you got many, many top, the mainstream religion, they all have these fasting inside because whatever the doctors or the priests or the imam or the rabbi saw, people, they need to clean up. But every day we need to clean up the engine. If you eat over food that you're not digested, it's not good. People forget that what is the main, main reaction before we get food? It's hunger. Your stomach growls. How many times, when was the last time you let your stomach growl? I met a Japanese biochemist and he proved to me that when the stomach growls, this is where you, you produce the most antioxidant in the body because it prepares to break down food. But it's not because it's 12 o'clock, oh wow, I have to eat. No, it's, it's like sadly, if you don't feel like eating, don't eat. It's not like, okay, sorry, Miles, it's, it's 12, it's 2 o'clock, I need to go to the bathroom. It doesn't work like this. I got receptors in my body telling me you need to go to the bathroom. But hunger is the sign of, of bringing energy to your body. Don't eat if you're not hungry, and that's the problem. I remember I read a, a line once from uh, Dr. John Berardi, yeah, the uh, founder of Precision well. Nutrition, yeah. and he said that hunger is not an emergency. Yep. And I think in our culture, we, we take it as an emergency. When we get hungry, we feel like we have to eat something. And most people just reach for food right away versus kind of just letting their body kind of go through things. And well, I always on. tell like when you're tempted by something, it's the same word as temptation. If you delay a bit, the gratification will be longer and better for your body. That, that's, that's always been a, a problem. If everything, if you do everything that goes through your mind, then you will be empty after a while. If you, you wait a bit, then you will see that it, it's like in tennis. The ball comes in. If I chase it too quickly, my timing will be off. If I wait for it and I apply the amount, adequate amount of pressure, then the ball will go whatever I want at the speed I want. There's a great book that was written. It's called Wait 
about timing and everything, but it applies to food too. Some people, one of my sisters, she's 80 years old, never had dinner in her life. She smokes a bit, she drinks a bit, she's small, but not a great athlete, never trained a day in her life. She looks like in her 60s, but never. She had breakfast, breakfast pretty big, lunch average, never had dinner in her life. She has that 16 hour of fasting. Some people, it's good, but what studies have shown, everybody should have at least a 12 hour span, minimum. If you're very, it varies in between 12 and 18 hours, depending on your genetics and your activity. Obviously, when we are trainers, it's hard to go without food for 18 hours because we're, we're, we're not sitting down all day. Right. We're moving, we're moving, we're like construction work almost. And also genetically, sometimes if you train more, you got more muscle, you have to be careful about that. Right. So if I'm kind of hearing you, one piece of advice that you're kind of communicating to people, there's a lot of different ways to eat out there, but one of the key factors is regulating food amount. Exactly. And also the, the, the time in between, because your body cleans it up by itself. Like I had, uh, when I was in Holland last week, a guy said, oh, I wore my Fitbit and I did what you told me. I, was, I ate like a, only six hours in between meal and my Fitbit was funny when I was sleeping, I didn't go into that REM sleep and uh, rapid eye movement and I, I felt like my heart rate was very high elevated during all the whole night, like I was woke up. Then other days when I was like 14, 15 hours without eating, my sleep was a lot better. As a word of advice, what we have found and what our parents always told us, if you could get in bed three hours after food, in between three and four, your last meal, it's better, generally. And then if you sleep eight hours, then your 12 hours is right there, or 13 hours of time you shower and stuff. Then you don't even need to calculate that. And everybody that does it, they tell me, like, wow, I feel better. And also, studies have shown with growth hormone, you don't really secrete growth hormone when your stomach is really full. It's a bad habit of having cereal before bedtime right. with milk. It's, yeah. it's tempting, it's contenting, but it's not good for your body. Yeah, what, I, what I've seen with people is that food amount is really the most challenging variable. And uh, one of the problems I find in just in our stress culture is that food is the most socially acceptable way to deal with stress, oh, to change too. your state. A lot of stuff. Drinking, yeah, all and that all kind of stuff. Too. I mean, it's, it's uh, depending on the culture. Right, so for people changing their habits can often be a big challenge because you know you want to work out more, you want to eat better, you want to regulate food amount, you want to work on your posture, but... But it's all like if you go again in either meditation, mindfulness, it will help you. When you really know yourself, you will know what's good for yourself. Your perception will change. It's all about perception. Some people, they will look at a cake like, oh, wow, it's great. Other people will look at the cake like, it's, it's, it doesn't do anything for me. I like salt. I like, uh, I like fat. But it's, it's a perception. Since we're very, very young, if you had been up, brought up in another country, you would have other, uh, other issues or other things because it's not, you're not born like that. It's, it's culture. So you said something which I'm a big fan of, which is know thyself, self-awareness. And I think that's a good note to end on. Um, in terms of awareness of oneself, for yourself, kind of where you're at right now in your career, what are you kind of working on? What are you up to? What are you doing at this moment? Not much, because what I've learned over time is that the less you do, the better you do. That's the thing. I mean, someone that's busy, oh, I'm too busy. That's not, it's, that's not good. They're restless. 
they're too busy because they're, you need a little more, pick, you need to learn to say no. And that took me 58 years to say that. I just started not long, long ago because you don't want to miss out, you don't want to, you don't want to upset, but I've learned over time, you can't, you can't be please everybody, especially today with social media and everything. People will like you, won't, it doesn't mean anything. Don't take it seriously. Don't take it personally. That's why I tell my athletes, sometimes I might get a little more vocal with you, but it has nothing to do with you, it has to do with what you did. Don't, I will never tell you, hey, Miles, you're a moron. No, Miles, what you did, I feel it's inadequate, but it's not you. I don't know you. It's not only you knows you. Then right. the, the, what you do, what we do sometimes, it's not adequate, but it doesn't mean that what you, you had a bad intention. Most people, they wake up in the morning to, oh, you're dressed like I don't like that suit. But in your mind, you like that suit. It's not my business. It's like we don't, and we have to understand, we have to learn how to agree to disagree. And in French, we always say, tu n'as pas être désagréable si t'es pas en agrément. If you don't agree, you don't have to be disagreeable. It has nothing to do. That's where people, they say, you know, it's, it's, my opinion has nothing to do with your personal. It's just an opinion. Absolutely. And, and a lot of people have opinions. And, it's okay. Uh, They're allowed to. Sure. Absolutely. Everyone's entitled to them. I think it's important in life to, like you said, know thyself and know what you're about and what's important to you and kind of operate from that place. Uh, and not get caught up in you know the 101 things that can take place uh, with all the people and things going on around you. But uh, did you have any for yourself? I'm curious, any goals or anything you were trying to work towards in any capacity at this point? Not much because, I mean, I like to teach. That's what I'm doing more. I promised myself by the age of 60 I'll do a lot more teaching, and I like that, and it's gearing up to right there and to just share experience and helping the new trainers, the young kids, the athletes, to for the next generation, because we're not immortals. I always tell people, I got good and bad news, the last page is always written for everybody. We're all gonna die. And tonight, one million people will not wake up tomorrow morning. Just check, it's a stat. I don't make it up. One million people, how do you know it's not you? You don't know. You could walk on the street. I mean, we being, without being fatalist, you need to understand that we're not that, we're very fragile. And every day, every moment, it's the time to do something. Don't wait, Don't, oh, I'll be happy when this happens. No, you won't. It has nothing to do with that. If you're waiting for external stuff to be happy, you will never be. You will always find something to make you happier than that could be drugs, that could be alcohol, that could be food, but that's not good. Alcohol a bit, food or drugs are okay. It doesn't matter, I don't take them, but if it makes you more happy, but at the base, you need to be happy. You need to feel good. If you feel miserable, don't take that because you'll feel more miserable. You need a certain level of happiness to be able to indulge in things. Absolutely. Well, it's clear that you're in a state of happiness and you know yourself That's and right. you know you know where you're going. And, and I think it's really noble that for you teaching, which I am also super passionate about, is kind of what you love doing and what you're doing now, sharing that wisdom with people, helping up-and-coming coaches and therapists become better and take you know what you've accumulated in 30, 35-plus years and basically share that with people and, and share that with the world. If I, we talk in 10 years doing the same interview, I'll tell you like when I met you, I was 50, almost 58. I didn't know anything and it's good because when you understand that you don't know nothing, you're always on the search of learning more things. Like when I taught a couple of weeks ago, uh, like when I was in Holland, I told the guys, please guys, go out, take your mind, put it in that basket and come back in. 
And that's because I don't want to teach on, on top of things that you know. Momentarily remove what you know. They'll be there. Don't worry. As you come back, everything that you know that you're atta attached will be there. But by the meantime, for the next couple of hours or maybe the next two days, just open the, the, the mind. Just to do stuff. Then you could pick and choose whatever you learn. At least it will not be an obstruction. Because a lot of things that when you learn new things, and it might end being in disagreement for what you, your culture or your views, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just your ego is saying, no, 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 no. Because how come he knows that I don't know that? That's the problem. So like, I'm not there to tell you how smart I am. I'm just feeding you info. You do whatever you want. But to do so, put aside momentarily what you already know. That's why when you have employees or have uh, new trainers, it's a lot easier for us to work with green trainers because they're not polluted by anything else. And then, then when they, it's easier to teach them. Then when they gather other information, at least what they learn, they're able to differentiate, okay, this is good, this is bad, or this is all good, this is all bad, but I'll use it anyway. Wise words, wise words. Well, Paul, I wanted to thank you for taking my the time pleasure, to, uh, to connect. And uh, we went over a bunch of stuff, and I think a lot of people will get some value from my it. My pleasure. But uh, it was awesome, man. Always a pleasure. Good stuff, man. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for listening in to the Miles Fit Transformation Show. I hope you really enjoyed this episode and took a lot of value from it. And hopefully it serves as the catalyst for your transformation on another level. Be sure to go find Miles Fit on all social media platforms. We're on Instagram at Miles Fit. You can find us on Facebook by searching Miles Fit. We have Snapchat as well, our great website blog at milesfit.com, and you can sign up for our newsletter as well there. So guys, again, thanks for tuning in and stay tuned for more shows.